and your family's back at home trying to live their life and without you in it and it can be just as challenging for them as well. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. They were building positions in there if for a fight. If anyone to us, by the time anyone got to us, I think it was chaos. the weather was so bad, there would be nobody left. Boots full of blood. And the next thing I hear was alarms screaming. Survival were very, very slick. The soldiers didn't want to go into the ambushes, so they'd send the kids in first. So he was sent in first into an ambush and he got shot in the stomach. It was very hard for me, very hard for my family. And the pain was proud of the pain. crew. Out of what I've achieved and what I'm doing. The volunteer for service was in effect to put your life on the line. For today's veteran conversation, Sharon Maskeldare spoke with Ben Flink, a veteran of the Australian Army. They spoke about Ben's journey to the Army, his time in uniform, the effect on his family, and the work he's been doing today. I'm Sharon Maskeldare, and you're listening to Life on the Line. In this podcast, I'm joined by Major Ben Flink, who enlisted in the Army Reserve in 2002 and then went on to deploy to the Solomon Islands in 2008. Today, he's still in the Army Reserve, but he's also Head of Innovation at the Royal Automobile Association of South Australia here in Adelaide. Ben, thank you very much for joining us on Life on the Line. Thank you very much for having me. So tell us a bit about how you came to join the Army Reserve, because everyone has a different story as to how they end up signing up. So what was your story? As a young boy, all I wanted to do was join the Army. And so my father was a full-time Army uh, soldier. He uh, served 21 years and retired in country South Australia. So at the end of high school, the only thing I ever wanted to do was be a full-time soldier. So at the end of year 11, I applied to do a trade as part of the trade school. It was a really good program and opportunity. Got medically knocked back at that point in time, so I didn't get in, but they did ask me to reapply. Uh, so I then went and did year 12, and at the end of year 12, applied for the Royal Military College, so the um, officer entry. Came down to Adelaide and did the selection that you do for that process and again was rejected for being too immature which I thoroughly agree with now you know looking back (laughs) at myself back then and I sort of gave up on that dream for a while so you know what the army doesn't want me came to Adelaide studied at university and sort of fast forward about six years later when I was 24 I made a new friend who who was in this thing called the army reserve and it was the first time I'd ever heard of it I didn't know this thing existed (laughs) and I was like wow you can do this part-time it's fantastic. So, so I pretty much applied the following week, got through, got into through the officer selection and got enlisted as an officer cadet back in 2002. So when you were growing up, given that you had obviously history of military service in your family, what was your perception of what it meant to be in the army? What did that mean to you? I think the word that would come to mind from that time would be community. So very strong community. I uh, would be babysat by numerous of my parents' friends or hanging out with them. We'd be, you know, looking back, it almost felt like every afternoon we're having a barbecue at one of my dad's army mates' houses. That was, it was a real strong sense of community. And how did you perceive them? I mean, you were looking up to these friends of your dad's and your mom's. How did you kind of perceive the kind of people that they were and what they stood for? 
Probably the best memory of that would be growing up in Pakapanyal. So uh, my dad was working in the 1st Armoured Regiment, going to the sergeant's mess and they got this tank at the front there that the kids used to be allowed to play in. You know, for WHS reasons, we're not allowed to play with them anymore, but uh, we had this great tank we would uh, jump in and around and we'd go and watch the tank parades. So it was, I guess, memories of that, of hard work, of green, of tanks and parades. That was kind of that, that memory that I have from that time. Interestingly, though, you say your dad was in 1st Armoured Regiment and yet you chose to join the Infantry Corps. So, so why was that? Yes, so my father was actually the uh, RAMI, so that's the Royal Australian Electrical Mechanical Engineers. Yes, so I had a very strong affiliation with RAMI, and obviously that's when I applied to get into the trade school that I didn't get into my first attempt at university. I studied biomedical engineering, so I had a very strong sense of, I guess, of engineering in terms of my thought processes. So when I signed up, I was was adamant I was going to go to either the RAMI, same as my father, or the Royal Australian engineers, so RAE. And it wasn't until uh, graduation at the Royal Military College at, you know, at Duntroon, spending two weeks out bush you know, with a full platoon and doing infantry tactics and formations, and also having the chance, I guess, to do the final, to be the platoon commander for the final sort of last 48 hours um, big push. I just fell in love with being a, an infantry platoon commander. And I also just fell in love with being out bush, I guess, coming from country South Australia, and you know, I actually enjoyed lying on the ground. <laughs> and I just sort of walked away from that. And said, I don't want to be engineers anymore. I actually want to be infantry. So you actually enjoy lying under the hoochie, <laughs> hard lying, as they call it. That's fun to you. Yeah, it is actually. I, I love it. I, you know, I love the sound of the the crickets, or you know, <laughs> really in tune to nature and the environment, and uh, being able to respond to that. So thinking back to the training that you completed at Duntroon, what do you remember about that time? Was it challenging? Were there surprises that you hadn't anticipated? The training is challenging and, and sure, there. Are, I mean, that's the whole point of it is to make you grow as a person. So some of it's uncomfortable, both physically and mentally. But if you can push through that and develop your own sense of resilience and be able to sort of have that mind over matter sort of perspective to be able to push through things even when they're really hard it's a really good philosophy and skill to take with you no matter what job you then go on and do because interestingly i mean we can hear a bit of hubbub behind us here i mean you're now working in innovation at the raa so i'm interested to know about the crossover perhaps between some of those skills that you developed during your training particularly at duntroon and and how that has translated across your civilian life in in a civilian workplace because obviously that's the nature of being an army reservist that's a really good question uh one of the things that i think I found really useful in my civilian career and prior to sort of the innovation role, I was in a commercialisation role at Flinders University looking at R&D or inventions from researchers at the university and then working out sort of commercialisation opportunities for them. But a really great skill set that I took away from the army training was this notion of don't assume the right answer. So in terms of thinking about a problem or coming up with solutions you know in the military we always kind of come up with three solutions and then as objectively as possible try and compare and visualize and do the story walkthrough of those three options playing out to then work out the best option i've actually found that such a useful thing in terms of meetings so there's lots of meetings that i've had over the last 15 years where i don't know the outcome of the meeting you know i've got a piece of research to work with and i'm trying to find a new client for it 
And so when you kind of got new and new and people don't really know, I've found that really useful just to grab a whiteboard and just go, look, you know, there's three ways we could work together. Okay, option one is, you know, we could work like this. Option two, we could work like this. Option three, we could work like this. And I say to them, look, I don't have a biased view on which one of those. Let's talk through which one's going to work for you. And I've actually found that a really useful approach in sort of enabling people to be able to partner. So instead of going into work with people going, this is a square hole, I need you to be a square peg, right, kind of thing. It's actually saying, well, there's three holes here. You tell me which one you, you fit into. And had you found then right from the beginning that balancing your military service and your civilian life, was that easy to do or were there actually challenges around that as well? Yeah, it's, it is challenging. I think it's about prioritisation and still is. I'd say probably now, you know, currently I've got a six-year-old and eight-year-old and, you know, young children, I think are probably where it gets a phase of life where it's actually uh, much more challenging, but workable. But yeah, there comes this point where you've got very young dependents. It does get a little bit of a juggle, but then you push through that. So, and also children, I think it kind of comes in phases. I remember when they were, you know, when they were babies, there'd be like a period of three months where you'd sleep every night. And then all of a sudden out of nowhere, there'd be a, a month where they would wake up every night. That were probably the hardest, most challenging times, actually. Take us back, though, to the time after you'd graduated from Duntroon. What was your first posting and how did that pan out for you? I say my first posting was here in South Australia to the Infantry Battalion here, being the 10th to 27th Royal South Australia Regiment. I think they call it training platoon. So I think that's when uh, enlisted soldiers uh, join and so they're not fully qualified as soldiers. Took over that sort of platoon, that very new soldiers, and my job was basically to get them off to their infantry courses to go get qualified as as infantry soldiers. And what are your memories of that time? Do you have fond memories? Very fond actually. So uh, Army Reserve infantry battalions have a very long and proud history. So you know the first night marching in to the commanding officer's office and there was two of us that graduated as infantry officers at that point. And then just having the, the history of the battalion told to us from the commanding officer and just this real sense of pride, history, of the long proud history of the battalion. I guess just wanting to perform to a really high standard to maintain the, you know, the proud history that, that had come before us. So given that history, back in 2014, I remember well that we had these fantastic commemorations here in South Australia, remembering the embarkation back in 2014 by the 10th Battalion and then in 2015, the 27th. What was your involvement in that? Uh, So at the time I was actually at 10, 27th Battalion. I just remember from, I was a 2IC at the time. Uh, I was second in command of companies, being at the rank of captain. There was a lot of commemorations. I mean, and let's face it, over the last five years, there have been a lot of commemorations. And so I, I remember organising an event for the battalion, which was really around um, sort of commemoration and celebration of the amalgamation of the two units, 10th and 27th Battalion, organised a really large function that we also used as a, as a fundraiser. So it was held at Torrance Parade Ground at our old headquarters where it used to be back in the day. And we had a band and dancing and silent auction. And I think we raised about $3,000 or something like that for, I think from memory, we ended up donating to Legacy. But it was a good thing to to celebrate that and come together and, and raise some funds as well. Now, in 2008, you had the opportunity to deploy to the Solomon Islands. So tell us a bit more about how that came about. So when I signed up, you know, in the reserves from memory, I don't think think we were serving overseas at the time. So when I did join, I didn't entertain the idea that I would someday be serving overseas. 
So I guess even personally, it was sort of surprising to find yourself sort of six years later with the opportunity. And I think it was about the time that I got commissioned, roughly about 2005, when I think reservists as units were going on deployments. Uh, so it started to become sinking as a, as a reality and a possible opportunity. And in 2008, it became the opportunity for 1027th or 9 Brigade here in South Australia to take the lead on going across the Solomons. And, you know, it was my final year as a platoon commander. I felt that I'd done all this training. I mean, it took me two and a half years to do the officer training, had been um, turn commander commander as well as a liaison officer to the brigade commander in my sort of first three years as a lieutenant. And I just felt, you know, I could take this opportunity, this opportunity to go on a deployment and use all this training that the people, you know, the taxpayers and Department of Defence have invested in me. I wanted that to be, to go back to the community that had, had invested that time and opportunity in me. So in the build up to actually leaving Australia, what did your training involve? And, and indeed, what was the decision making for you around family and, and being away? For all deployments, um, whether you're reservist or full time, there is pre-deployment training very much focused on preparing us for that theatre of activity. So it's customised and meant to test us to make sure that we can do the job. And in fact, I think we even get sort of certified before we can actually go across to the theatre. With that trip in 2008 to the Solomons, I had the opportunity to go to the School of Languages and uh, learn Solomon Islands Pidgin. So I did that for four weeks full time. Absolutely love that opportunity. I think the School of Languages is just a fantastic educational environment. And so I guess it actually added on pre-training on top of the pre-deployment training that I had for the Solomons. So I think I was away for, I think overall, probably about at least six months that I was actually away from home. And it is a bit of a challenge for it being my first time on operations. Didn't really know what to expect. I sort of flagged to my wife at the time that there was a national support coordination centre. I said, if there's any issues, just call this number and they've got a magic wand and they make everything um, work better. So uh, I guess now in hindsight, like, I definitely um, would perhaps prefer my family a bit better and just talk through the different scenarios and all the different organisations that they should not could, but should access and be a part of just to help them through their journey. I mean, you know, I'm over there working with a pretty full-time focus on the tasks at hand sort of day by day, you know, and, and your family's back at home trying to live their life and without you in it. And yeah, it can be just as challenging for them as well. So tell us a bit more about that, given that many of our listeners won't have the kinds of experiences that you're referring to there and perhaps can only imagine the reality of going away and leaving your family several months at a time. What did that mean for you? And importantly, what did it mean for your family? So it really is about this sense of service, I think, for both myself and my family. So you only need to go to a Anzac Day ceremony and sort of, if you sort of retrospectively look at, you know, our pretty young history here, it's sort of been founded on those making you know, significant sacrifices, defence personnel and families, you know. So it's kind of, it's really interwoven into our history. And so for me, that opportunity to go serve overseas is, even to say that, it is about this sense of service, like we're serving the country. And I think also, you know, for my wife, and she was very supportive of that because she understood that it is about this service to something greater than us. It's bigger than us. It's not about our family. It's about, you know, what our country thinks is the most, you know, in our best interest of the country at the time. So that's where it comes from. So you talk about contributing to something bigger than yourself. So what was it that you were over there to do? 
So the mission in the Solomon Islands was an interesting one in that it was police-led, so it wasn't army-led. And it was a international operation, so from memory, the broader international operation was called Operation Ramsey uh, and did involve police personnel from all over the Pacific region. Very much an international cooperation. The army component, which I was a part of, was a supporting force of that, of their activities. And really we were there as a, I would say, a security and deterrent force to make sure that the police could do their job and not get interfered with. So give us a sense of what you were walking into, because clearly for you to be there, there had been some breakdown in terms of local security in the Solomon Islands at the time. So take us back to that moment when you first arrived. What was your sense of what was going on politically and socially at the time? We were actually very well prepared. We had a really thorough handover takeover. But also in our pre-deployment, I had the opportunity to meet a platoon commander who'd sort of just come back. So this is before we were going to go, but so he'd, he'd been back, you know, a couple of months or whatever and spent some time with him. So I had a really thorough, and this was here in Australia, sort of in-depth handover takeover from someone who'd just come back. So, so I was very much felt prepared from that perspective. But then in our pre-deployment, we were very much, there is, you know, this big component around current political and social, both history and current uh, occurrences, et cetera. So we very much felt current in exactly what the situation was. So when we finally did go over there you know, and land, you kind of feel that you, you're current. You, you know exactly what's going on. We thoroughly researched what our jobs were, what our role was, what the terrain was, where everything was, what we we're going to be doing. So you, you weren't walking into anything blind. You felt you were walking into something that you felt very comfortable to take over and do the job in. And when you arrived, tell us a bit about that journey and what were your first impressions in terms of the sights, the sounds, the reality of being in this place that you'd never been to before? Well, it was a very, it was a very memorable journey um, because we were in a Hercules and, and I was with the Tongan platoon. So I was sort of only, a, I was with the forward element that went across early. And I remember sitting in between these two fairly large Tongan soldiers and I was absolutely squished in for this four-hour flight from Townsville across to Honiara in the Solomon. So very memorable. And then I guess, you know, the, the tail ramp drops and, and you hop out. I just remember it being really hot, like hotter than I thought it would be. So, yeah, and so it's like you hop out and uh, you just start sweating straight away. So that was that was really the, really the memory. And we were greeted, obviously, by a defence you know, greeting party and sort of quickly processed. It was non-eventful. I just remember it being really hot. Was there a sense of threats from the moment that you first arrived or did that only become apparent a bit later? So one of the jobs that we did have over there was being a – there were sort of four main jobs that you could – you could do over there as a platoon. And one of those was being the quick reaction force. <laughs> so, which is really about being able to respond rapidly and also in a very sort of strong posture. So, so my first role uh, was actually being a training platoon over there. So there were five platoons, you know, three Australian, one New Zealand and one Tongan. And there are four jobs to do over there, sort of four main tasks. So when I got there, I was the platoon that didn't have a job to do, which meant we were training, <laughs> so, which, is, which is fine. Uh, we, so we do training, I think it was in, yeah, after the first week, within a week, seven days, you know, there, were, there was an incident 
of some sort of on a remote police site. So and I think there was something happened with one of the international police officers you know, and we had to respond. And so it was within seven days, I had a third of my force was deployed to a remote area to go and protect and secure a local police outpost. So it just gives you the sense that they're, they're, sure. And they're, they're lovely people over there, but there is always that risk that things can happen and incidents can happen and things can escalate. That was in the first week and I think broadly the Solomons is made up of sort of six main tribes from memory, but I think there's hundreds, hundreds of islands over there. So sort of the remoteness and disparate nature of the Solomon Islands and how sort of disconnected it is, things can be remote and things, you know, kind of do flare up or happen or occur, I guess from a security and even from a local Placing perspective, it is a very challenging type of country to to manage from that perspective. And in terms of your memories of what you learnt and achieved during that deployment, what were the highlights for you? Were there kind of key moments that really stand out now as defining how you remember what you experienced at that time? A real positive experience that I had over there was, I guess, around just the just around leadership and what that is and having 29 soldiers, you know, looking to you for leadership. And I think also being responsible for their lives you know, and their safety. And, you know, things like that did happen, you know, where a soldier got evacuated to medical support and things like that. So, I mean, you develop this real sense of responsibility and leadership and accountability, decision-making. So being able to make decisions and realising, you know, there are impacts of your decisions, but standing by them and being able to adapt to them as the situation changes as well. So I just loved learning those skills and being given the opportunity to learn those skills. I'd already learned them, I guess, during the training, but when it was really needed, delivering. So that was was good. And tell us a bit about the impact on your family at that time while you were deployed. It is um, challenging to sort of maintain that relationship back home sometimes. And I think also, you know, the unpredictable nature of the types of jobs that you're doing over there and also the remoteness. So with some of the things, you can't even indicate that you might not be able to talk to (laughs) someone for a while. So you kind of just sort of generally chit-chat, et cetera, et cetera. But then I might be away for an extended period of time, but I can't even communicate that. So it can be quite challenging. It was actually challenging for my wife as well, you know, back then. And I think it's one of the things I didn't, or we didn't think about was, I guess, for my wife, it was the first time she'd lived alone. So she left her parents to come and live with me. Um, so I guess at the age of 22 or whatever that she was, that was the first time she'd lived on her own and would build a house together and things like that. But it was a big empty house for her and it was quite quite a big challenge for her. Obviously felt a little bit lonely and, and it was a big strain on our relationship actually. Yeah, a big challenge for her back at home. So how did you then deal with that? Because obviously when you are away, you are deployed, you've got limited communications, you can't necessarily tell your family or your wife the reality of what you're dealing with. Because notably, when you came back to Australia, you then became very active in the veterans support and veterans welfare space. So how did that come about? And to what extent was that connected to your personal experience and perhaps the realisation that more needed to be done to help people? I guess for reservists, it's a little bit more challenging with, uh, we come from lots of different units and states sometimes to, to go on deployments overseas. And then when you're coming back, I had a, had a platoon commander from Perth and a platoon commander from Tasmania. We were really close, but they also go home and I'm here in Adelaide. And I ended up just walking into an RSL because I just wanted to go chat to someone if that makes sense. Um, so that was back in 2009. And it was a really positive experience just to walk in and, and just have 
not much. I mean, they were older veterans, but just have older veterans and just be able to sit there and just say, look, you know, I'm sort of struggling a little bit, and you know, what I'm thinking and feeling, and, and just have them say, look, yeah, we've kind of been there, you know what I mean? <laughs> oh, okay. And then just having someone say, yeah, we've been there, just kind of makes it the problem half, or you know what I mean? That you feel so much better. Oh, okay. Happens the other way. Well, like it's not a big deal. <laughs> I mean, like, well, how did you get through? Or whatever, you know, just having someone to talk to that really understands your experience was really valuable. And so that was really valuable for me and, and for my relationship. And I guess then I got really active in the RSL space, sort of wanting to promote that and go on. Because I think that the, the whole ex-service uh, organisations or ESOs, are uh, they known, they do feel this, I think this real, this connectivity back to the community. So for those who do go overseas and serve, both for their, you know, for their families as well and for them individually. And just being around, I guess, other veterans who, or veterans' families that, that understand. So that there is that space. And so that's what I'm really passionate about that. How important do you think it is then for support to be offered to veterans more widely, given the fact that we're not just dealing with individuals who deploy, but there is this impact on entire families? I think something that I've sort of been saying or talking about is due to the really strong entry requirements to get into defence, I kind of had this view that really sort of our best and brightest people from Australian society from Australian communities um, get into defence. You know, these men and women and their families, you know, make great sacrifices for the good of for the good of Australia. Some people do have some bad experiences and or negative impact on their families. So my view is since, you know, if you take that, we've got our best and brightest serving our country for us, you know, we're us, we the Australian people, we're asking them to go do this job. If something goes wrong for them when they come back, my view is there's not enough that we can do for them. I mean, they put their, their lives on the line or their families on the line. You know, they've made significant sacrifices to do this job for us as a country. If they're in trouble, I think as a country and a community, we need to be there to, to do everything that we can to support them. And that's, that's my point of view. I will also say that there are a lot of support services out there and I think we're actually in a good good place about that. But but you know, it's not it's recognizing that we all need to work together. I think there is like the rest of the not for profit sector, there's quite a bit of fragmentation and lots of different brands and lots of different things happening. I think everyone's heart's in the right place. As I said, there's the needs there to help those who who have served us as as a community. Let's be there to serve them when they need us. We're all here for them. Major Ben Flink, thank you very much. And thank you for all you are doing for veterans, particularly here in South Australia. This is Sharon Maskeldare for Life on the Line. That was Sharon Maskeldare speaking with Ben Flink. If you have feedback on this podcast, please email us at podcast at lifeonthelinepodcast.com. If you would like to learn more about this show, the team, or discover some of our other veteran stories, look up www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. On the website, click the featured page to listen to some of our most popular episodes. You can also find us on social media. We are on Facebook and Instagram at Life on the Line Podcast and on Twitter at LOTLPod. Every Tuesday, we have a conversation with an Australian veteran, and on Fridays, we have bonus episodes. This Friday is a conversation between Angus Horden and David Michael, President of the Naval Historical Society and a Royal Australian Navy veteran. Next Tuesday is my chat with former Army paratrooper and Navy clearance diver Paul DeGelder. Subscribe to the podcast in your app of choice to get all content. We're on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher, and you can also listen on our website. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Werkhoven. 
Thanks for listening, and lest we forget.